0: In the space of just a day, a major escalation that few had expected.
1: That's as anger grows over the potential eviction of
0: Palestinians from homes on land claimed by Jewish settlers. Look how they are firing at us, he says. How can we live?
2: I'm Medassar Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. As tensions have escalated between the Israelis and the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and the historical neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, Jerusalem, this episode brings together both Israeli and Palestinian activists and human rights advocates to discuss the unbearable living conditions of Palestinians and how to take action. Earlier this year, Human Rights Watch released a report examining the treatment of Palestinians under Israeli rule, the report is based on an in-depth research and analysis that has spanned over two years and includes case studies from across the occupied Palestinian territories and Israel. In this episode, I sat down with a panel of experts to discuss the findings of this report and much more. Today, we're delighted to be joined by the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, U.S. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, former Director General of the Israeli Foreign Affairs Ministry, Alon Leal the director of the Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning short film The Present, Farah Nabulsi, and the executive director of the Israeli human rights group Salem, Haggai al ad We're also joined by several respondents who will ask questions throughout today's discussion. Before beginning the panel discussion, I'm now going to hand over to Ken Roth, the executive director of Human Rights Watch, who will give us a brief presentation on the report. Okay, well,
3: Thank you very much, Professor, and thank you very much for holding this forum. Um, let me just, um, you know, kind of give a just a brief summary of the report for those who might not have read it. Um, the The origins of the report really stem from frustration with our longtime analysis of what was going on in Israel and the occupied Territories. Um, you know, we were used to documenting, you know, issue by issue, Um, you know, looking at things in isolation. And it basically, you know, became inadequate to us. You know, one, we felt we needed a much more holistic approach to the problem. But second, we really needed to change the way we were looking at it. It was no longer enough just to look at it as an occupation, given the fact that, you know, this occupation has now gone on for almost 54 years. Um, It was no longer enough to look at it as a temporary measure, you know, pending the imminent resolution of the peace process because the peace process, you know, insofar as there is one anymore, has been going on for 30 years. And so we um, really decided to stand back and look at, you know, look at the big picture. And the result of that is a 213-page report where I think you all know, we've concluded that the Israeli government is committing the crimes against humanity of persecution and apartheid. Now, let me just say, a word about that. Um, I first want to acknowledge, particularly with Haggai on the call, that Human Rights Watch is not the first organization to make this claim. Haggai's group at Salem um, did so this past January. Abdallah um, has done it, a, a very respected Palestinian group, Yeshdin, and, and, and others. And indeed, if you even look at kind of mainstream media, there is, you know, almost a um, a tendency to use the conditional tense to say, you know, if Israel were to continue down this path, we would arrive at apartheid. And you know, I suspect the people who say that, you know, were just being kind of, you know, were were being guarded that they were sort of downplaying the problem. But what we essentially say is, let's stop using the conditional. Let's use present tense. It's here, and let's let's admit that reality. Now, even though many people, when they use the term apartheid, think about South Africa, um, we are not using this in historical terms, we're not making an analogy to South Africa, as we make clear in the report, we are applying international law. And in particular, the um, 1973 Apartheid Convention and the 1998 Rome Statute, which created the International Criminal Court. And if you look at those two, plus just kind of broader customary international law with respect to persecution, they define what these crimes are. I'm going to focus here on apartheid because that's been the, the the crime that's received the most attention, but in essence, you know what you need is an intent by one, what's called a racial group, but is understood more broadly to include a national or an ethnic group, to dominate another. You then need systematic oppression and so-called inhumane acts, which are basically you know concrete examples of that oppression. And so, the bulk of the 213-page report is running through what you know the evidence that those three elements of the crime have been realized you know that the proof is really overwhelmingly there and so to speak just briefly to each of them on the question of intent this intent to maintain dominance by jewish israelis over palestinians we look at a range of factors from government statements to policies laws you know suffice it to say that that this is a problem you know not simply in the occupied territories but also within Israel proper, within the Green Line 1967 borders of Israel, where there is systematic discrimination. I mean, one fact that I think most people don't know is that there are 900 communities within Israel which have so-called admission committees whose purpose basically is to prevent Palestinians from living there. And so it, even though we recognize that Palestinian citizens of Israel have many rights, you know, that they can vote, they have passports, they can travel, they have representatives in the Knesset. They also face systematic discrimination. And this discrimination, it's manifested, you know, largely in terms of efforts to try to limit and confine the population and to limit its access to land and resources. But then things get more severe when you look at the occupied territories. And we found that with respect to the two other elements of the crime, the, the systematic oppression, and the inhumane acts, that these occur um, in the occupied territories, by which we mean the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and Gaza. And we treat Palestinian territory as a whole. There are two completely different legal systems within the occupied territories. You know, one for Jewish Israelis, one for the Palestinians. There is radically different access to land and resources. So for example, about a third of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, has been expropriated. That in turn goes 99% of the time to the settlers. If you look at sort of particularly um, area C, you see that the settlements are booming, but the Palestinian village next door is stymied. You know, if you live in one of those villages in in, in area C, you are a hundred times more likely to receive a demolition order from Israeli authorities than you are to receive permission to add a bedroom onto your home or to build a school in your community. There is a deliberate effort to prevent any building out of these villages while the settlements just expand and expand and mushroom. Um, And this, in a sense, is almost forced transfer. I mean, just as it's a violation of Article 49 of the 4th Geneva Convention for the Israeli government to allow Israeli citizens to move into occupied territory, so it's a violation to effectively force Palestinians to leave, to say that you know, there really is no possibility for economic growth, for familial growth, for the normal, normal aspects of life, if you're living, particularly in, in Area C. There are huge differences in the ability to travel. You know, if you um an Israeli living in the settlement, you can travel pretty much, you know, at will into Israel, out of the country, you know, what have you. There are very few restrictions on you. If you're a Palestinian, Obviously, living in Gaza, there are huge restrictions on you. If you're living even in the West Bank, though, you've got to contend with you know multiple checkpoints that, that just you know dot the area. You have to deal with the fact that you know families cannot be reunified. If if you know, if you're living in the West Bank, if you marry a Palestinian in Gaza, your only option is to move to Gaza. You cannot bring that person to the West Bank legally, at least because you know the Israeli government is trying to shift the demographics. They're willing to kind of ultimately write off Gaza. But they want to maintain the West Bank and therefore you know minimize the Palestinian population of, of the West Bank and particularly of the parts that they want to hang on to permanently. There are vast differences in just you know, you know say if you're a resident of East Jerusalem, if you are an Israeli, you can travel abroad, live abroad, work abroad, you know, no, you can always come back with no problem. If you're a Palestinian, if you go and say study at you know, university, you've got to worry about whether you can come back or whether you would lose your residency permit to live in East Jerusalem. Um, and finally, um, there are just vast differences in the personal freedoms allowed to these two populations with the Palestinian population facing severe restrictions on freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, access to a civilian as opposed to a military legal system, you know, huge differences that split the two populations. And so when you, you know, add all of this up, we find systematic oppression, on discriminatory grounds, coupled with you know, a whole range of so-called inhumane acts that comprise the second and third elements of the crime of apartheid. And so we find that these three elements of the crime come together um, in the occupied territories. Now, let me just um, conclude by, by noting a few of the responses that we have received, because they're interesting. The, you know, the Israeli government has responded, a variety of supporters of the government have responded, And what's interesting to me is that, you know, there's been virtually no response to the facts. You know, people don't come and say, oh, you got these facts wrong, or you got this legal analysis wrong. In fact, I'm aware of one person that has come and said we got any fact wrong. And this was someone who said that we had somehow misreported the allocation of water within the West Bank. And, you know, we've looked into it and we were actually right. You know, but in essence, um, the analysis and the facts of the report have been accepted, but rather there's an effort to kind of misrepresent what the report said or just to change the subject. So you know, of course we're accused of being biased, you know, even though Human Rights Watch reports on Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and Hezbollah, you know, even though we report on all of Israel's neighbors, you know, even though we apply the same standards to Israel's conduct as we do to a hundred governments around the world. You know, some people say, oh, but South Africa was so different. You know, of course it's different, and we're not even claiming that it's the same. You know, as we, as I said, and as it says in the report, this is not about making an historical analogy. It's applying international law. Some people come back and say, oh, but Palestinians are citizens of Israel. How can you possibly say that there's apartheid? They read the report that we, of course, you know, highlight that in the report and note that that isn't sufficient. And in any event, we don't claim that the systematic oppression and the inhumane acts are happening within the Green Line. We say that they're happening within the occupied territories. Some people say, are you really saying the Jews are just racist? And of course we're not. We don't even get into motive. You know, that's irrelevant to the determination of the three elements of the crime that I outlined. Some people say, oh, but you know, Israel's security requires these measures. And while Israel clearly does have important security concerns, it faces a terrorist threat. That doesn't justify the, the mushrooming of the settlements, which have nothing to do with security. If anything, they jeopardize security. It doesn't justify the home demolitions in in Area C or in in East Jerusalem. It doesn't justify the lack of building permits for Palestinians who live there. It doesn't justify the discriminatory access to resources like water, where you know the Palestinian village has to truck in water while the the settlement up the hill you know has has swimming pools. Um, it doesn't justify the restrictions on family unification. It doesn't justify the blanket travel bans. So, in short, this is not about security. This is about you know controlling a population, shifting the demographics, controlling access to land and resources. Some people say, but this is really an opposition to a Jewish state. You know, this is an attack on the law of return. But we're quite clear that um, you know, international law actually gives governments great latitude with respect to immigration. So there's, there's no you know, international human rights law that says that Israel cannot have the law of return. But international human rights law, the law of apartheid, is not permit blatant discrimination against the people who are within a territory, um, or for that matter, um, discrimination against people who have a right to come there. And finally, you know, and this is, I, I suppose, is the one where I'm getting the most often, people say, this is really BDS, you know, and BDS has become kind of anathema to, to many of the, um, the people who, who identify with Israel. But of course, we don't advocate a boycott of Israel. We don't advocate a boycott of the Israeli government, of Israeli companies, of Israeli people. We don't do any of this BDS stuff. We just ask in a very limited sense for companies and governments to avoid complicity in the crimes of apartheid and persecution, just as we do everything, every place else. That is a very, very narrow urging of refrain consistent with UN guiding principles that has nothing to do with BDS. So we hope that you know at some stage, hopefully sooner rather than later, the futility of these diversionary defenses will become apparent. And our aim at that stage is for the Israeli government to recognize that it's not gonna get rid of people saying that this is apartheid until it actually dismantles apartheid. You know, that this is, um, you know, it's not a commentary on what the ultimate resolution should be, we're neutral on whether there should be one state or two states or confederation or what have you. We just want equal rights for the people who are there. And that's what we hope to accomplish with this report. Well, thank you
2: for that detailed presentation, Ken. Now we move on to the interactive part of the panel. And uh, Congresswoman Rashida, I'd like to, to start with you. Thank you for joining us today to talk about this important issue. As the first Palestinian-American congresswoman, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been one that you've not shied away from discussing. After seeing the report, was there anything that surprised you that you found particularly
4: important? Thank you so much. And thank you, Mr. Roth, for um, that thorough uh, explanation. I I think it's important to first answer this question in this way. I want to thank all of the Palestinian human rights organizations and the Palestinians on the ground who have been saying that this has been happening for so long. They've been living it. My grandmother has been living under apartheid since I was a young girl. Uh, and so I want to stress and, and give thanks to all of them for not giving up and speaking the truth about what it felt like living under um, illegal occupation. In the report, I think what this what, actually surprised me, even though, you know, a young girl going through checkpoints with my grandmother or even with my uncles to to Ramallah within the occupied territories and just uh, the continued uh, kind of oppression, discrimination policies that we saw that I saw personally. I was actually uh, Human Rights Watch addressed how it was in, institutionalized. What I mean is the Israeli government has actually implemented in law not just in practice. I think that is something that I didn't realize so much of what is being what happening in various Palestinian villages and within the Palestinian community was, also being institutionalized through the consensus and through actual policy and through the administration again with the blessing of the co-government, so it's not you know local entities like you see here in the United States maybe implementing various policy, but like a national agenda, a national uh, law of the land approach that is leading. I think again through these oppressive oppressive policies. So in the report they. They really do take a deeper dive into how much of, you know, the uh, discrimination and the systematic oppression that continues to happen to the Palestinian people is actually law of the land in Israel.
2: Thank you for that, uh, Rashida. We're we're now going to move on and take a question from um, Nicholas Pelham, who is the Middle East correspondent of The Economist. Um, He has a question.
1: I, I suppose I had a, a, a couple of questions, it's a fascinating presentation. Is the consequence of, of viewing Israel and Palestine through the prism of apartheid, one of transforming a conflict from one of a struggle for two states to one of equal rights, essentially saying that Palestinians should give up the struggle for, 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 for statehood and seek equal rights within a single entity? And the second is, uh, you say you're not against BDS, but if, as an Israeli company, you're paying taxes to a state that is complicit in the crime of apartheid, wouldn't that amount to a blanket ban on Israeli business and be tantamount to to BDS? first,
3: with respect to, you know, what the ultimate political resolution is of the conflict, we don't take any position on this. And, you know, the quest for equal rights stands regardless of ultimately whether you have a one state solution, a two-state solution, a confederation, or you know any other permutation. The point is that you know the you can't allow this you know endless quest for some political settlement to justify what today is you know systematic discriminatory oppression. And so that's our point. And you know we would insist that any other ultimate political resolution in which we really take no position, that that respect, the basic principle of of equal rights for anybody who lives within the territory that ultimately is carved out. In terms of, um, you know, we have never taken the position any place in the world that paying taxes is complicity in a government's abuse. You know, by that standard, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen, should I stop paying taxes because the U.S. government, you know, has Guantanamo? You know, so we've just never gone that far. Um, Our definition of complicity really is, is much narrower and looks to whether, you know, business operations through their operations are actively facilitating a particular crime. So, you know, we've done this with respect to the settlements um, you know, we don't insist, you know, for example, that a business, you know, prohibit settlers from using their business. You know, we, the settlers are not criminals, they just live there. The, the, the crime is the government that has, you know, enabled their movement into occupied territories. So we would oppose, you know, a business setting up a major operation within a settlement but we don't say boycott settlers or anything of the sort. So we take a fairly narrow view of complicity, which is, I think, frankly, how the UN guiding principles on the human rights responsibilities of businesses are generally interpreted. I've never heard taxpaying as being considered complicity.
2: Thanks for that, Ken. Um, Ambassador Allen, thank you for joining our discussion today. Since serving as the Director General of the Israeli Foreign Affairs Ministry, you've made some very powerful statements. In one of these statements, you said, The option is not two states or one state, it's two states or apartheid. With your understanding of how the Israeli government works, how do you think this report will affect current and future policymaking? Just regarding this uh, statement,
5: uh, I really think that even if the Palestinians will give up their wish for a state and uh, be ready to... Become uh, part of the Israeli society or the Israeli country, they will never really get the full uh, political uh, national rights, uh, and uh, so we will not have equality, even even if they give up the idea of uh, sec- uh, an independent Palestinian state. So this is the reason I made this statement because I see what's going on in in Israel. I sense. Uh, the feeling toward the Palestinians, I sense the fears, and they will not be allowed to vote for the Israeli parliament. Uh, they can be given citizenship, uh, social uh, conditions, social rights, but but they will not get uh, the right to vote, and this will make Israel an apartheid state. Regarding the way the, the report is being received, it is almost totally ignored Um, by, I would say, 90% of the political system intentionally ignores it. And uh, if there are reactions, it's immediately labeled as anti-Semite and and so on. And then it is isn't ignored as an anti-Semitic report and so on. Even if we have another government, a new government, and it's touch and go, even tonight we don't know how the new Israeli government will look, it's all the right wing or the center. The center will also reject this report. So we will not have a government, an Israeli government, that will welcome the report or even relate to the report. And there is this... uh, Israeli uh, Jewish left, five percent of the population, and maybe Arab left, another five percent of the population. These ten percent will not be able to use any kind of type of leverage on the Israeli government, even if they are in the coalition, even inside. This will be a red line. So I don't think there is a chance that the Israeli government uh, will accept it, relate to it, and we have to think on what could be done. Uh, putting the Israeli government aside.
4: Yeah, I'm sorry. Medassad, I, I really, I think, you know, Ambassador, I so appreciate, you know, that lens and that view. And as you are speaking, you know, I, I, as somebody that grew up in the most beautiful blackest city in the country, uh, the, the city of Detroit uh, in the United States, you know, this is what they said about black folks in my own country, right? This is what they said about the current government and the systems that were in place that really oppressed my black neighbors to the point is said they'll never be able to vote. They'll never be able to equality. And we still have that fight in, but I think we are trying to come from a place of love and humanity and getting to that point. But I, I, you know, I know uh, folks at human rights, watch, I know uh, as they put this report together, you know, don't know, but I know for me, when I read this, I look from that lens of what ha- is continues to happen uh, here in my own backyard, in my own country, in the United States, as we try to combat those forms of oppressive policies and discrimination. But yeah, it's just something I wanted to share as you were speaking ambassador. I, I remember you know, reading about the history in our own country and that's exactly what they would say about black folks that they'll never do this. Maybe we'll give them the South. Maybe, maybe we'll have one part of the United States be for black folks and the rest. And you know, I just grew up fully understanding separate but equal did not work. Uh, and and believe truly that we can coexist um, with the same kind of human dignity that everyone deserves.
2: Thanks Rashida, I'm moving on to to Farah now. Um, Farah, your Oscar nominated movie, The Present, seeks to shed light on the Palestinians in occupied territories and Israel. Many label the movie as daring for depicting the mistreatment that Palestinians face at checkpoints. Have you received any feedback from Israelis about how they feel about those scenes?
6: from israelis well i mean ultimately i i didn't make the film for an israeli audience um i made it for a a western audience and that can consist of uh, you know all ethnicities and and religions and backgrounds and political views and all of that um so i don't actually know in detail what israelis think of the film um it's on netflix uh, Worldwide, so it is available there, and I know that it can be seen there. Um, I've received, you know, obviously some hateful messages on social media that aren't even worth mentioning, and I've also received some um, positive, you know, direct messages and emails from individuals who I know are from, whether it's from various NGOs or or, or sort of left left wing um, perspectives who really welcomed it and and, and commended it. What's more interesting to me is the reception it's received from the international audiences um, in the sense that, you know, and when you say daring, I mean, you know, I really gave the PG version of what takes place at these checkpoints. And, you know, people have died at these checkpoints, people have not been able to to access hospitals and uh, clinics, people have been shot at these checkpoints, women have given birth at these checkpoints. Um, And so this is the PG version, a man goes on a shopping trip and, and, you know, struggles with the process. And yet, it has resonated so far and so well with international audiences all over the world, all over the US, Europe, UK, Japan, Australia, and so forth, Uh, whether it's with the Audience awards and the jury awards, or the distribution or the media reception. And what that tells me is that people, aside from obviously the cinema and the emotional experience that a good film gives, is the interest and intrigue in the subject matter and the resonance that such a basic human right, such as freedom of movement, has had with people all around the world. And yet, That is just one little element of this much bigger control system under military occupation and apartheid. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And it was welcomed and it was uh, embraced and and people wanted to understand and and talk about it and learn more. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a very positive outlook of where we are in this time in the world.
2: Thank you, Farah. Um, we're now going to take a question from uh, Hannah Weisfeld, the director of Yachad UK, a British NGO that seeks to mobilise British Jews in support of a political resolution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So uh, over to Hannah. So um, for those of you who don't know about our work and Alon and
1: Chagai, a long-term, uh, Partners of ours, and so they know very well what we do. But we're working in the British Jewish community to build support for an end to the occupation and a political resolution to the conflict. So, for those of you in America, I guess the closest uh, thing that you might recognize is J Street. And I'm really interested to kind of, I I guess, hear from your perspective, um, those of you who have your feet on the ground in America, what the conversations have been like with the establishment Jewish community. Because the response to the Human Rights Watch report here has been, and I actually pulled this up because. um, I thought it was a very well summarized tweet. A trainee rabbi who tweeted this morning, my fellow Zionists, perhaps we ought to be less concerned by fighting the word apartheid and more concerned with fighting the conditions that lead people to use the word. This kind of, and I guess it's similar to what Ken said, this kind of, you know, balking at the use of the term and a complete dismissal of what has, you know, the conditions that are on the ground that have, you know, created a scenario in which people use it and you know without passing judgment on the use of the word it's almost the kind of diversionary thing Of we can't we can't engage with anything because you said that word and I just wondered how those conversations have gone in the US because certainly the conversations I'm involved in the UK and I wouldn't say are necessarily the most positive ones.
2: Thank you Hannah. I know uh, Congresswoman Tlaib since you need to leave soon would you like to
1: Yeah, no, thank you, Hannah, for
4: uh, setting that beautiful tone from the rabbi in regards to looking at the condition and and beyond just the words. Uh, I think, uh, you know, many of my neighbors here in the United States that have been, you know, holding signs and marching for Black Lives Matter would say the same thing. Look beyond the words of Black Lives Matter and look at the conditions that my neighbors here are experiencing under, you know, over policing, mass incarceration and so much more. I do want you to know, I mean, 2021 is shaping to be a pivotal year for advocacy for the Palestinian cause, you know, our fight for Palestinian rights and dignity. A number of my congressional colleagues uh, with leadership of, you know, Congresswoman, uh, Congressman Mark Pocan and I have led an official congressional letter to the United States State Department, uh, you, you know, using the words like settler colonialism, but also addressing specific actions like home demolition, the fact that, you know, people like my grandmother have still not been sought out to get vaccinated during a public health, you know, global public health crisis. And so I think, you know, there is going to be those Folks that will, you know, truly believe no matter, you know, various reports or facts, everything's based on facts, specific actual actions. I mean, I think even uh, Farah's film, The Present, was based on our own, you know, experiences or talking to Palestinians that are experienced checkpoints. It didn't just come from thin air or made up. It's actually real lived experiences that there are going to be those. And this is something my mentor who's of Jewish faith told me this. He said, there are going to be people that will never hear or see you the same way they may others. They will shut it out because there is, that is much easier than facing the facts and the truth about conditions or about, you know, injustices. And so I just, I'm hopeful because, you know, just a few years ago, you would be unthinkable for 12 members of the United States Congress to sign a letter uh, that gets us closer to pushing back against illegal occupation, against discrimination and racism within Israeli laws. And so I know there are going to be those that will continue, of obviously denying that because for them, they will continue to other people like myself or other Palestinians as if they're less than.
2: Thank you, Rashida. Um, we'll now go to Haggai, the executive director of B'Tselem. Thank you for joining us, Haggai. Throughout the Human Rights Watch report, your organization was constantly referred to and used as a source for information. Could you tell us how B'Tselem goes about its investigations on the ground? Um, yes.
0: Um, if I'm not mistaken, indeed, you're co- correct that not only that we're frequently quoted, but if I'm not mistaken, we are the most quoted NGO uh, in the Human Rights Watch report. We're very proud of that. Uh, it's a result of uh, the realization of the, the vision of those that founded B'Tselem over 30 years ago, back in 1989, to establish an organization that will be obsessed with credibility and commitments to, to facts. And even though some people think that we now live in a post-fact world, we remain very old school in that in that fashion. That's the result of the steadfast work of the entire team of Bitzelen, which I'm very proud of. Feed researchers, video volunteers, data coordinators, researchers, Everyone else on uh, on staff. What I want to add, though, to what I've said is that uh, as much as we believe in facts and their and ability and how essential they are, we have come to the conclusion that a factual description of reality was and remains essential to provide a basis for advocacy. But in and of itself, it is not going to be sufficient to change the reality on the ground. People are not going to just wake up the Israeli public. occupying power. Those those that enjoy the privileges of apartheid aren't just going to wake up because of another report and say, what we're doing has moral consequences that needs to stop because of facts. Change simply isn't going to come that way, and we need to wake up to that reality. What is needed is the introduction of consequences. With consequences, we have a fighting chance. Facts on their own will
2: not be sufficient. Um, Ambassador Alon, those that travel regularly to Israel have stated how split Israeli society is. And whilst there are those that support the Israeli government's actions against the Palestinians, there are those that condemn these actions and want to seek a peaceful resolution. How do you think those voices can be empowered?
5: I don't think there is a real split in the Israeli society. Hmm. The right wing has the upper end clearly especially when it comes to the conflict with the Palestinians. So we don't really have two rival ideologies inside the Israeli public on this issue. On this issue. So also when we uh, have this dilemma on engaging the Israeli public or the international community, you must take into consideration that the Israeli public is not ready for such an engagement because there is a very clear Ideology, almost united ideology on the Palestinian matter. I will. I want to to relate a little bit to to some of the things that were said here. I am here because I'm one of the few Israeli citizens who lived under the South African apartheid. I was the Israeli ambassador to the South African apartheid, and later the Israeli ambassador to Mandela. And, and was very, very lucky to have tens of meetings, and some of them almost polarized with Mandela. One of the things he, said, he told me in the first meeting, in the first meeting, we know exactly what Israel did with apartheid. You were in love with apartheid, you were allies with apartheid. But we look to the future. If you will do one, two, three, especially in the context of the Palestinians, we will look at everything differently, and I think, and I think, first of all, between engaging the Israeli public and the international community, more important now to engage the international community. But the most important thing is to set up goals, to set up a target, to set up specific demands, and we ha- we are in a way lucky in the context that, that we're speaking about where a new administration in the United States to have a new president, and we all know how dependent Israel is still on the United States, although it's a regional power. We have to set up a target, especially the United States, and lead and demand the Israeli government to do it. Not maybe at once, but to set up certain goals that could be done at this stage.
2: Thank you. I mean, just to press that point a little bit more, Haggai, with you, how do you find Israeli society responding to your investigations? And also, what's your view on, I suppose, how to bring Israelis and Palestinians closer together? I think factually speaking, if you just
0: measure in terms of budgets and staffing, B'Tselem is probably the Israeli human rights NGO that invests more than any other a locally based NGO, in direct engagement with uh, with the public here, it's part of the basic moral commitment that we have towards the society that that uh, we are a part of. That's obviously in addition to our advocacy internationally, uh, with the emphasis, as I was saying before, on the need to end impunity and introduce consequences. Otherwise, we're just wasting our, our own time uh, and nothing is likely to change because of the public relationship, because of normalization of the situation, because of the passage of passage of time, because of the fact that it's zero price uh, for the privileged half of the population. I, I think that one of the things that, uh, which is specifically interesting that we've learned throughout our engagement in recent years with the Israeli public is that you can take rather assertive, maybe I could even say bold moves vis-a-vis previous policies of an NGO and not lose your base of support in uh, in society. If I reflect on some of the actions that B'Tselem took over the last five years, uh, deciding not to work anymore with the military advocate general investigations, going to the UN Security Council twice, writing a report exposing the role of the Israeli High Court of Justice in green lighting and providing a guise of legality to end the human rights violations against Palestinians, uh, making the point that it's not about the Jura annexation because it's the fact annexation that really took place a long time ago which is making the difference in the daily life and the ongoing oppression of Palestinians in the occupied territories and in January apartheid. Yes, we have a minority of the public here that supports us, but that solid minority remained with us throughout all these changes
2: throughout the years. Thank you. I'll now move on to the closing thoughts um, to the panelists um, and I'll start with, with Ken,
3: your closing thoughts for today. Okay. Well, um, first, I, let me just thank you again for for convening us. And you know, I I, I just think that um, you know, difficult as it is for many people to accept apartheid as a fair description of what is going on today, um, I, I'm hopeful that you know, the Human Rights Watch report coupled with you know the work of salam and and um, you know Dala and Yashin and 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 others who are, you know, coming to similar conclusions, I think there's more in the works, Um, I'm hopeful that this does lead to a reassessment. And, you know, I say this not with the aim of tarring Israel or, you know, throwing around um, horrible names, but rather because, you know, this this basic recognition of reality, you know, really is, is the next step toward change. And, you know, none of us are in this business to just name call. Um, you know, despite the, the the reactions we received from so many, um, we're doing this because we feel that um, this this accurate and fair description of reality is essential for changing it. And so I've, you know, I've left the last, you know, week encouraged by the response to the report, you know, we never quite know how people will react, but the overwhelmingly positive reception that the report has received. Um, I take heart from because it suggests that people are um, ready to make this reassessment and that maybe we can begin to move beyond the intolerable status quo. Thank you, Ken. Tara?
6: My last thoughts. Um, James Baldwin, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. So, you know, this report extremely, extremely important as it is. And again, previous reports and all of this and the facts and the figures and the truths and the proofs and the maps and so on and so on, extremely important in eliminating ignorance. But I also bring back this this idea of autistic advocacy being possibly the most powerful means of, 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 of meaningful human communication and the most powerful form of advocacy that opens the way for all other forms of advocacy to be more effectively received. Essentially because film art speaks to the heart. And that is the main way you can draw empathy. That is the main way you can humanize and therefore other forms like these reports and UN reports and facts figures will be more effectively received. Because you can have all the facts and proofs and truths in the world. But unless you've opened people's hearts to the pain and oppression and injustice of another, you will not be able to access their minds or even their sense of reason. And studies have shown this time and time again. You can show people absolute factual proof that contradicts something they've been repeatedly told or made to believe. And even then, they will remain steadfast in their truths and and their beliefs. There is a very deep inertia. Those same studies have shown that if you can bring people to empathize, if you can address them through their hearts over the same issues, topics, beliefs, through empathy, people become much more ready to take action, to move away away from their original positions or even change their minds. So do not underestimate that.
2: Very powerful. Thank you, Bara. Uh, Guy. The, the first question you you
0: asked me today was about B'Tselem, uh, B'Tselem research. Uh, and one of the, and, and I spoke about how committed we are to, to facts uh, and, uh, and credibility. Uh, we're also committed to telling the story as, as it is. Uh, and these stories are, are gut-wrenching again and again. Um, and that also <laughs> means that for those that um, are interested you have also the ability of you know going to the you know B'Tselem website uh, where you can read you know first voice testimonies about this this reality you can see video footage um, you can see betselam produced documentaries that are you know letting you not only learn about what is going on but, but have a sense have an emotional sense the way this injustice impacts the daily lives of millions of people for decades. And from that, I hope we will get closer to a point that will end this, this injustice. I want to circle back to what Ken said and just kind of like re- repeat that. So like the, 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 there is a basis for optimism in this growing serious consensus that the situation is apartheid and needs to be addressed as such. Uh, I think that is good news. Uh, I think that's absolutely good news and should not, shouldn't be taken for granted at all. Having said that, obviously none of us should be satisfied with that. That's an essential step in the right direction. It's far from sufficient. It will become sufficient when not only the understanding will change from democracy plus occupation to apartheid, but when this new
2: understanding will translate into assertive consequences. Thank you. And uh, last but not least, Ambassador Alon. I think the
5: importance of the, the report of both Human Rights Watch and the previous report of Betelhem is the A word, the apartheid word. I think, I think in Israel, first of all, it's extremely difficult to use it, and every Israeli using it pays a very heavy price. And I'm among uh, the ones using it, but I think, I think uh, the using the word apartheid keeps uh, the battle against occupation alive. Uh, Although it's being so thoroughly rejected uh, by Israel, uh, mostly the Jewish community, mostly rejected. uh, Big parts of the world are rejecting the use of the term. We have to go on using the name. Uh, By the way, regarding similarities, the West Bank situation is very similar to the South African situation. Not the overall Israeli-Palestinian situation, but the West Bank is similar. So don't be ashamed of the comparison. And and especially when when you compare the suffering of the uh, blacks and colored in South Africa to the suffering of the Palestinians is definitely a comparable. What is uncomparable is the balance of power. The balance of power between Israel and the Palestinians has changed in such a dramatic way that Israel is so powerful that it it can really do what it wants, internationally, locally. And this was not the South African situation. In the South African situation, what balanced the power between the blacks and the white was the international community. And the international community, in fact, Introduce this type of pressure that could have an impact on the ground. And, and we have to find a way that Israel will be convinced, or from the outside, or from the inside, that going on with these policies will cause Israel damage, will ruin Israel. Not that the Palestinians can get more support internationally or the Palestinians will become stronger. No, you are committing crimes that will end up, uh, that Israel will uh, pay a price that, that will be too high. And if the Israelis being so strong at the moment will be convinced that they are going toward this dead end, then they might stop. I, I don't speak on a U-turn, yet, but at least stop with the wrongdoings.
2: Thank you for joining us for this episode of PR and Mars with me, Madassar Amit, by Unitas Communications. I hope you learnt something valuable with this episode. I certainly did. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode. Stay tuned.